This is our last message, our last Bible study in the series on suffering that we have been doing. Today we talk about it from the real practical aspect of not just about us and why we suffer, but others when they do what we ought to do for them. Paul, an apostle, he begins, of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, which all the saints, with all the saints who are in all Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Father, we turn our hearts and our thoughts toward heaven as we ask now that your Holy Spirit would take these sayings, your word, make them fresh, real, applicable to our personal lives as we become ministers of comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. A book written by Bruce Larson and Keith Miller has a striking paragraph I'd like to read to you. They said, The neighborhood bar is perhaps the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give to His church. It is an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but... It is an accepting and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart... I believe that Christ wants His church to be a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk, I'm beat, I've had it. This is the practical side of suffering. To analyze it and to observe it, to pick it apart and philosophize about it, does little good unless you can use it. And the result of suffering is that we ought to be able to help others who suffer eventually, become ministers of His mercy. Oftentimes when people go through affliction, I hear them express this sentiment, I don't know what good could come out of this. I hear you talking about a purpose for our pain, that God has some reason for it. Well, I can't see any reason for this. Well, let me guarantee you, here's one reason. There might be a lot of reasons you don't know why God would allow you to go through what you go through. But here is one definite result or fruit of your suffering. And that is that you might be a blessing to others who go through some of the same things you go through. Now, a few of us in this room have not been able to relate much to the past series on suffering. We've discussed Job and his loss. We've discussed Paul the Apostle and the persecutions that have occurred in the early church. 
And some of you just can't relate to that. Simply because your life seems to be blessed so much. You're flourishing so much. And we rejoice if that's you. If God has blessed your life, we're not jealous. We rejoice for you. We thank God that He's blessed you so much. But just because you have been a recipient of God's blessing, don't you dare think that this is not relatable to you. Just because you're experiencing sunshine right now doesn't mean it's never going to rain. It'll rain sometime. Dark clouds will eventually come into your life. And we need those dark clouds. Let's face it. As the Arabs used to say, all sunshine makes a desert. We need some of those rain clouds. We need a mix of the sunshine and also the darkness. But our concern should be for others as well. And that's where all of us can relate to this. Whether you're blessed and you're just flourishing or whether you're suffering, all of us can relate to this simply because we ought to be concerned about fellow Christians who are suffering. Paul the Apostle said, if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer with it. Their pain should become our concern. Your life is woven into hundreds of other lives. You are not alone. Your life influences hundreds of people. You have many connections. You have family members. You've got neighbors. You've got business associates. You've got people that you know at church. Some are casual contacts. Some are intimate friends. All of them are ministry opportunities. Whether you know them intimately or casually, you have the capacity to hurt them or to help them. As we look at this section today, our main focus is on the ministry of comfort. Really, that's what Paul the Apostle is getting at. And I want you to notice an unusual mixing of words in this section. Look at it with me. We see the word tribulation. We notice the word trouble, sufferings, afflicted, burdened, we see despaired, and death. Now that's the dark side. That's the shadow. That's the rainstorm. But notice these words mixed in the same verses. Mercies, comfort, consolation, a little bit further down, hope, trust, and thanks. Now there is the paradox of Christian suffering. You have both of those experiences side by side, never to be separated. You've got the dark side of tribulation and affliction. And you've got the positive side of hope and trust and comfort. Right in the middle of it. These verses tell us the place of God in suffering and the place of us in suffering when others are going through it. And you'll notice, beginning in verse 8, we'll get to it, this section is laced with Paul's own personal experiences. I like that about Paul. Paul does not just philosophize. He's very practical. He's not an ivory tower kind of a preacher. He's a rubber-meet-the-road kind of a guy. He says, here's the principle. This is how I have lived it and experienced it in my own personal life. You could divide verses 1 through 11 up into two sections. It's very simple. And these two sections describe the two different roles that Christians play in suffering and comfort. Role number one is the reservoir. That is where you are hurting and you take in all of the comfort of God that you can. The second phase is 
the channel. That is, after you have been comforted, you become now a channel to dispense God's mercy and God's comfort to others who are hurting. So on one hand, you're in need, you become a reservoir. On the other hand, you become a channel to those who need it. There are times when trouble hits. It is unexpected. Your life seems to crumble. You're floundering. You're frustrated. Your knees seem weak. At that point, you need the comfort of God. Troubles just seem to hit at different times in our life. Somebody once said, why can't life's problems hit when we're 18 years old and we know all the answers? Or we should say, we think we know all the answers. But troubles just come through life. And there are times where we need desperately to be the recipient of lots of grace, lots of comfort, lots of mercy. There are other times when we observe grief in others. It is very obvious they are hurting. Their world has fallen out. And there's the time where my eyes must go off of myself and onto their need and be concerned using all of what God has given to me, all of the comfort, all of the mercy that I have received, I now dispense it. I become a channel to give it out to others. As we go through these verses today, please listen to this for yourself and not for others. It is always a temptation when we hear a message to listen for other people. We think, I know somebody who needs to hear this. I'm going to get them the tape. Or we might be sitting next to somebody and we give them a little nudge during the message. In other words, this is for you, Bubba. (laughs) Listen for yourself as one who needs comfort and one who needs to give it. First of all, we look at this reservoir experience in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Notice that the Apostle begins not by mentioning his problem. He doesn't begin with his problem. He picks that up in verse 8. He begins with praise. He says nothing of his circumstances. He says a lot about his God. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Now that tells us where his focus is at. His focus in the trouble is upon his God. There's a story that says when Daniel Webster wanted to give the impression when he met a person that he knew he had met in the past, but he'd forgotten who that person was or what the circumstances were or what the name of that person was. When he had come in contact again with that person, he wanted to give the impression that he knew that person, he would ask this question. He would say, so how's that old complaint? He said nine times out of ten it worked. People would unfold some complaint, some problem that they had previously talked to him about. They just dumped on him and he knew that's human nature. Not Paul the Apostle. He begins by saying, blessed be God. And he praises the Lord. You've often heard that saying, prayer changes things. We want to add a PS to that. Praise changes things. I believe that no matter what a Christian goes through, he should be able to lift up an anthem of praise in the midst of his trial, no matter what it might be that he's going through. Paul said, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. 
Now, that doesn't mean for everything give thanks, but in everything give thanks. There are certain things I'm not thankful for. When I hear about somebody killing somebody on a subway in New York, I don't say, oh, thank God. When I drop a weight on my foot and break my toes, I don't jump for joy. Well, I couldn't jump for joy, actually, if I broke my foot. But I wouldn't. But in that circumstance, I am able still to say like Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. During the 1600s in Europe, there was a war called the European War, or the Thirty-Year War, that left much of Europe, especially Germany, devastated. People were dying right and left. There was a minister who was in the midst of that war named Pastor Martin Rinkart, who conducted as many as 40 funerals per day, burying people. 40 funerals a day, a total of 4,000 burials in his ministry. And in the midst of that kind of despair, he wrote for his children something he called table graces, something that has become a song in many churches today. It goes like this. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom the world rejoices. In the midst of such deprivation, like Paul the Apostle, blessed be God. Now I'd like you to notice how Paul describes God. He doesn't just see God as God or the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he calls Him the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Question, how do you perceive God? Honestly, how do you in your mind think of God? As just God or as some unconcerned silent judge ready to bust you when you make a wrong move? Or have you experienced God's mercy? Have you ever been comforted by God? Have you ever gone through it and say legitimately God has been my aid, my comforter? the one who's come alongside me. Now the word here that he uses in these verses for comfort is the word periclesis, which if you remember our past studies when we spoke about the Holy Spirit, he is called the paraclete or parakletos, one who comes alongside of us to help. He is the God of all paraclesis, meaning he comes and he encourages. He brings refreshment, consolation, He's the one who is summoned to help me whenever I have a need. He's the God of all comfort. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would be another comforter. Jesus, the rabbi said, will come and be the comforter of Israel. Paul says he's the God of all comfort. Now, when does he comfort you? It says here, in all of our tribulation. The word tribulation, philipsis, means whenever you are pressured, Whenever you're under the gun, it means to press hard together. God comes and consoles and encourages whenever you feel pressed. Now, can you think of a more appropriate verse for this day and age than this one? We hear so much today about stress and pressure. You ever feel after the end of a long day your head's in a vice? Oh, the pressure, the work, the anxiety. Stress vitamins are big today. They say exercise to relieve stress, and we all should. Ann Landers gets 10,000 letters every single month from troubled people. She said the predominant feature is fear among people. The pressure of our society. 
Time magazine about a year and a half ago had a cover article that showed a guy hanging off of a big clock. The article was called High Anxiety. It said there's a national sense of uncertainty and fear and malaise in our own culture. I remember driving on the freeways often to and from work. It took me about an hour to an hour and a half to get to work in the morning in Southern California. And on those freeways, you get out of your car, it's like, you're stressed. Well, he's the God of all comfort. Here's the picture he paints. He comes to refresh me. He comes to help me and to strengthen me. Whenever I am under pressure, he's the God of all comfort. Well, let's look at Paul's pressure. Verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our philipsis, our pressure, our trouble, which came to us in Asia. Now notice this. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Let me read that to you in the Weymouth translation. We were exceedingly depressed, quite beyond endurance. You ever think of the Apostle Paul like this? I bet you don't. I bet your view of the Apostle Paul is, here's this mighty man of God. He glows in the dark almost. He oozes with togetherness. He's spiritual. This guy wrote the New Testament practically. Inspired by God. You don't get depressed, Paul. You don't despair. You counsel others who do. You're not supposed to go through these things. Now, we often view vessels of God just like this. We elevate them to pedestal status as if, oh, well, if they don't go through what I go through. Paul said, let me tell you something. I despaired almost of life. We don't know exactly what this trouble was. We could guess, but it's not important. What is important, according to Paul, is that God comforted him in the middle of it. That's his whole point. He's not trying to elicit sympathy. If you only knew the trouble I had in Asia. That's not his point. His point is not to elicit sympathy, but to illustrate divine comfort. Paul is saying, let me tell you something. There was a time in my life when I needed to be a reservoir of God's comfort and mercy. And that's when I was in Asia. I was so pressured, I wanted to give up. God can comfort us for this reason. God can comfort us because He can relate with us. That's why Jesus became a man and came to this earth. If God never became flesh and came to this earth, we'd say, how can you relate to me? You're up in heaven. I would say, you have it made. When I say I'm in pain, how could you relate to that? When I say I'm crying, how could you relate to that? But by God becoming a man... The book of Hebrews tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like. When you say, I'm crying, he remembers what it was like. I'm hurting. My friends have left me. He can relate. A little boy and his father were driving home one Christmas Eve. Going through the neighborhood, this is during World War II, they noticed that People had their lights up. The trees were decorated. The lights were shining from the houses. Candles were in the windows. Every now and then, the little boy would see a house that in the window was a star, sometimes lit up. He'd say, Daddy, what's the meaning of the star in some of these windows? Dad said, Well, son, that's a family that has a son in the war and probably a son that died in the war. 
As they were approaching the house, they turned the corner and the little child looked up and noticed a star in the sky. He said, Daddy, look. God must have a son in the war as well. And it's true. God did have a son in the war who did die, who was sacrificed for us. We serve a God who knows what it's like to suffer because He did in the person of Jesus Christ. He can relate with us. Now I want you to notice the next couple verses beginning in verse 9 because this answers the question in Paul's life, how the comfort came. You see, he says, God is the God of all comfort. We need to receive God's comfort. Now you're going to see how Paul got it. First of all, verse 9, it shows us that his trial produced trust in God, which comforted him. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul received God's comfort, first of all, when he was going through a time of pressure. He was out of his own resources. He had to trust in God, and that comforted him. You know, whenever we have resources, for whatever reason, to get bailed out of any problem, we have a tendency to trust in ourselves. Not always. And if God has blessed you with great resources, again, we thank God for that. But the danger is we begin to look to our abilities, our resources. We think, hey, if there's a bill that's a little bit too big, if there's a problem that comes up, really not a problem. I can bail out of it. But whenever we are at the end of our resources, backed into a corner, the bottom has fallen out, it causes us to cry out to God. And whenever we do, there's great comfort when we realize, what can I do? I'm backed into a corner. Well, I belong to God. He's got to work. I'm learning not to trust myself, but in God who raises the dead. That does bring great comfort as we trust. In fact, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Oh, Lord, I'm mourning right now. I'm really going through it. Please comfort me. And he will. So the comfort came, first of all, as Paul realized he's not to trust in his own resources or ability, but in God who raises the dead. Secondly, look at verse 10. The trial he went through reminded Paul of God's plan. He said, Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust, he will still deliver us. Times of tribulation bring times of reflection, right? I would say active reflection. You kick back and you wonder, why did this happen? What is the plan of God in all this? And sometimes it's a little more vocal. God, why? What plan do you have for my life? What are you doing? Why are you allowing this? What it caused Paul to do is look at God's overall plan for his life, past, present, and future, and that brought comfort to him. He looked to the past when God delivered him from the greatest death, spiritual death, when he was saved. He looked to the future and saw what God had in store for him in the future in heaven. And that gave him comfort now. In other words, if God loves me enough to save me when I was a wretch, and if God loves me enough to take me to heaven in the future, he must love me enough now to handle my problem here in Asia. And that is great comfort as we realize God does have an overall plan, past, present, and future. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him 
also freely give us all things. God delivered, He will deliver, and He still does. Now, folks, God always delivers. He doesn't deliver you always from the problem. He might deliver you in it, through it. But there's always a deliverance. It doesn't always come the way we like it. We think, well, just take it away. Well, as we saw last week, it doesn't always happen that way. Example. Acts chapter 12 tells us, in the space of a couple sentences, that Peter was in prison and he was released, but James had his head cut off. Both of them were delivered. Maybe not the way they would have chosen. One was allowed to continue his earthly ministry. One went directly to heaven. Both were delivered. But both in God's own way. Now look at verse 11. This is the third way that Paul received God's comfort. And that is, it enlisted the help of other Christians. In other words, God uses other Christians to comfort us. Verse 11, You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Paul's trouble in Asia caused the Corinthian Christians to get busy praying for Paul. As the news went around the church, hey, have you heard about Paul? He's having real problems over in Asia right now, in Macedonia. Hey, we better get on our knees and pray for him. And so they did. Very much like Acts chapter 12, we just mentioned. Peter was in prison. The text reads this way. Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was made continually by the church for him. He was in prison, but they prayed for him. And God answered their prayer. It says that he was sprung out of prison. An angel released him. And so what does Peter do? He goes back to the house where they're having that prayer meeting that night to pray for his release. They must not have prayed in much faith because Peter knocks on the door and the servant girl, seeing it's Peter, said, It's a ghost. It can't be him. God couldn't have answered our prayer that quickly. He keeps knocking. Let me in. So she runs inside and tells all of these men of God who are praying for his release, It happened. He's outside. He's released. They said, You're nuts. They prayed, but it must not have been a prayer of faith. Because when God answered it, they didn't believe it. But God did respond. It enlisted the prayer of others. One of the greatest sources of comfort ought to be us. We're God's people. We ought to be, for other Christians, one of the greatest sources of comfort whenever they are struggling at a time of pressure. We ought to be the ones with outstretched arms, not with pointed fingers. Well, if you only did this right and had enough faith and didn't... know, we ought to be the sources of comfort. Why? Because we're the body of Christ. Look at it this way. When Jesus walked on earth... He had a physical body. He was of great comfort to people. He spoke words of comfort. He touched people and comforted them. His physical body is not here anymore. He ascended to the right hand of God. And so the church is called the body of Christ. We're His mouth, His hands, His legs. We are to touch people in the name of Christ, becoming that body through which God can work, the instruments of God comforting others. There was a man who had a dream one evening that really bugged him. It frustrated him. 
He dreamt that he was dressed up in his nicest tuxedo. He was sitting down at a big banquet table, nice tablecloth, great food like Christmas banquets. Many people were next to him, but he had one big problem and so did everybody else. Their arms were tied to boards. They couldn't bend them at the elbows. Can you imagine how frustrating? You could grab the food, but you couldn't bend your arms to put it in your mouth. And as people were moving and shifting and getting frustrated, one guy down the table had a brilliant idea. He grabbed some of the food, carefully lifting it across the table and put it in his companion's mouth. And it caught on rather quickly. Everybody fed one another and they all enjoyed a great feast. They used each other's arms as instruments to be blessed. Let me show you how that works. Turn right to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 for just a moment. 2 Corinthians 7. Paul expounds on what he mentions in chapter 1, his trouble in Asia. Verse 5. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Did you mark that? How did God comfort them? By sending a comforter named Titus. The body of Christ reached out. God comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now there is the experience of being a reservoir. Paul says, here's a time in my personal life where I was under such pressure, I wanted to give up. I wanted to just quit. I despaired of life. And God comforted me. I became a reservoir. I needed it. I took it all in, all of God's mercy. Because my trial caused me to trust in God, not myself. My trial caused me to see God's overall plan, which brought me comfort, and I was comforted by the other Christians who ministered to me. I was a reservoir. Now there's a shift, and Paul talks about not just being a reservoir, but being a channel. Back in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Here's Paul's main point in these first 11 verses. Whenever I'm in need, God comforts me. But He does not comfort me just so that I can be comfortable. He comforts me that I can become a comforter. There's a purpose for my suffering. Among other things, and there's a lot of reasons. Well, I don't know why this is happening to me, what God's trying to show me. Here's one thing for sure. It is to enable us to be compassionate instruments of God's mercy. To dispense God's mercy and God's comfort. If you ever travel to Israel, one thing that is notable is the two bodies of water that are within the land of Israel. And they call them seas, even though if you know anything about oceans or seas, you'd say, that's a sea? The Sea of Galilee is 8 miles wide and 13 miles long. We'd call it a little lake. They call it a sea. Uh, And then down from that, about 65 miles, is the Dead Sea. 
There's a lot of similarities in these bodies of water. Uh, first of all, they're 65 miles apart. They're connected by the same river. Uh, they're in the same land. They're part of a topographical landmark known as the Syrio-African Rift. They're all below sea level. The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is about 1,290 feet below sea level. But while there are similarities, there's mega differences. The Sea of Galilee has lush vegetation around it. It's fresh water. It feeds farms all around the region. In fact, it's become sort of the pipeline as they pipe water to various farms throughout the land of Israel. It gives life. The Dead Sea is 25% salt solution. Nothing lives in it. It is a dead sea. The question arises, why? Why is one living and one dead for this reason? The Sea of Galilee has an inlet, takes in water from the Jordan, and it continues the water flow down below. It has an inlet and an outlet. The Dead Sea only has an inlet. It has no outlet. It takes in nourishment. It gives out nothing. And whenever we take in but never give out, it is self-destructive. We become filled with minerals, but dead. Nothing can live. It's only when we give out the comfort that we have received that we become really valuable to others. And so that's one of the purposes. One of the purposes for comforting the Spirit of God, comforting us in our trouble, is so that we can reach out to others. That's why it's important, whenever you go through a trial, to experience the comfort of God. Don't feel guilty if you need comfort, if you need help. If you need to learn the lesson of God's provision, it's all in preparation that you might minister to others. God wants you to become the fulfillment of the proverb we often say, like father, like son. God comforts me. I ought to be like him. I'm his kid. I ought to reflect his attributes. He's modeled it. He's demonstrated it. I'll do it. Remember at the Last Supper, John chapter 13, it says, As supper was ended, Jesus rose up from the supper, put a towel around him, took a basin, and washed the disciples' feet. Then Jesus said, What I have done for you, I have done as an example, that you would do the same. He didn't do it just because, well, listen, I want to clean your feet up a little bit here. He says, I've done this as an example. As I have done, so should you do. Serve others. Minister to others. Give out what I have given to you. One person reminding us of this says, We must realize that the symbol of Christianity is not a beautifully polished cross, but a lopsided, crude, splintery cross over which is draped a towel. Not the lush, plush towel we buy for our guest bathroom, but a dirty old rag wet with the sweat and dirt of men's feet. Now in verse 5, Paul goes on, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, the word is overflow the banks, so our consolation also overflows through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings, which we also suffer if we are comforted. It is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. If you have suffered, that suffering is a wasted experience if you do not use it to comfort others. It's a wasted time. 
In fact, let's reverse that. When you reach out after your episode of pain to comfort people that you see that have gone through the same things, that ministry of comfort is more effective than any sermon ever preached because people see love incarnate touching them, reaching out to them in their time of need. Throughout this series, I've had a number of people after each service and through mail saying these messages have been a source of great comfort and perspective for us. It's, it's been very beneficial for us to see suffering in the light of the Bible. But as helpful and as comforting as the Word of God is, imagine how much more effective they would be if they were preached by someone who has gone through exactly what you have gone through. And there are so many experiences, it would take so many different people to do that. That's what we're for, all of us. To hear words of comfort from somebody who's not gone through what you've gone through makes a certain kind of an impact. But when that person has touched the level of pain you have and they share the gospel with you, it means so much more. The best counselor for somebody who is a survivor of cancer or a victim of cancer would be someone who's gone through that same episode of cancer. Somebody who's lost a child can minister so effectively to others who experience loss and death. So, question, where do you fit in? Where are you when others suffer? Let's ask a question. And I know what the answer is going to be, but let's just ask it anyway. How many of you here, honestly, have ever suffered? Raise your hand. How many of you have experienced great loss in your life? Raise your hand. You know what that means? That means every one of you who raised your hand has a ministry. Because there's lots of other people, as you can see, who hurt. You are suddenly qualified because you've experienced that. Now let me ask you another question. In that time, did God ever comfort you? Raise your hand. Now you're qualified. If God has comforted you and given you His grace and showed you His mercy, you are now qualified to become a minister of comfort to so many people who are around you. Somebody said, lighthouses are built by ex-drowning sailors. I guess that's true, isn't it? They crashed into the craggy rocks. They're going to make sure that there's a lighthouse for the next time around. Roads are widened by victims who've gotten in accidents, who've discovered, that road's too narrow. I know. I'm going to make sure that others are comforted. I'm going to make it a little bit wider. Now, I want to end this series and this message this morning by giving you three short, simple, biblical dictates. These are three practical ways that the Bible says we can comfort others in affliction. Number one, weep with those who weep. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Weep with those that weep. Simply put, grieve with people who are grieving. Whether that means you just sit with them or you cry with them, but you grieve, you weep with those who weep. Job's friends did it right at first. It says they came and sat with Job for seven days after he was afflicted. They didn't say a word, but they lifted their heads up toward heaven and wept. They tore their clothes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. That was great. The problem is when they opened their mouth, it was all over. In fact, God even said that they were not 
giving his word, and Job called them miserable comforters. But at first they had it right. They entered into his grief by grieving with him. So did Jesus. Jesus came to Mary and Martha. Lazarus was dead. Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead, but it says Jesus wept. Now you might come up with different reasons why Jesus wept, but the point is he did. He entered into the experience of grief that they had entered into. And I think that sometimes the greatest sermon is silence. You don't have great words, nothing really significant. You're just there and you listen and you're quiet. Weep with those who weep. A little girl in school lost one of her playmates. Her playmates, her friend, died. Knowing that the mother and father were in deep grief, that little girl went over to speak to that mom and dad. And she told her parents, Mommy, I just went over to see little Julie's parents. She said, well, honey, what did you tell her? What did you tell the mom? She said, I didn't tell her anything. I just climbed up on her lap and I cried with her. That was a great sermon that little girl preached, weeping with those who weep. Secondly, bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. The idea is that you come alongside somebody who's weak and you help them carry that load. In fact, it says in the New English Bible, help one another carry these heavy loads, your time, your energy, your resources to bear their burdens. Great example is the Good Samaritan. Here's a guy who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves. He was beaten, left by the side of the road. A Samaritan came by. What did he do? Did he call 911? Did he report the accident? Did he say, this is a shame. I'm going to call the church and tell them, those pastors better get down here. No, they got involved personally. They saw the need and they reached out to meet the need. Bear one another's burdens. A lot of practical ways to do that. A warm smile speaks volumes. A touch, a handshake, a hug, better yet, eye contact. Three, pray for one another. James chapter 5, verse 16. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. Prayer will lighten the load like nothing else. It helps a person focus that God is in control. Let's bear our burdens to Him. And don't just say, listen, I'll be praying for you. That's good, but pray with the person. Let's pray right now. Let me take you before the throne of God together right now. He doesn't need a sermon on why this is happening. A Christian on his knees is more effective than a philosopher on his tiptoes. Pray with him. So weep with those who weep, bear one another's burdens, and pray for one another that you might be healed. One of America's favorite treats is popcorn. Probably all of us love it. Most of us. Popcorn is different from every other corn or grain. If you put regular old corn in a skillet and raise the temperature to 400 degrees, it'll just shrivel up and harden. Put popcorn on a griddle, heat it up to 400 degrees Fahrenheit, and the gases within the kernel will expand and cause that tough outer shell to explode. It will increase its size 10, 15 times, and it becomes a delight to old and young. There are some people who suffer and become just like regular old corn. The fire of affliction causes them to shrivel up and become tough and hard and bitter. While others, the fire and the flame expand them. 
as explosive as it might be, they become a source of delight and refreshment to others. My prayer is that we'll become sensitive and caring to the afflictions that come our way, that we'll become like popcorn. Instead of hardened, we'll become tender and compassionate. And if you can see no reason at all why you are going through what you go through, the pain and the affliction, one thing is guaranteed. You can be through it a source of comfort to others if you allow God to comfort you. Heavenly Father, our hearts are now turned back to you. We've examined in the last seven, eight weeks suffering, affliction, the questions we ask, where is God when we suffer? All the different styles of it. And there's more to be said. But Father, we just commit ourselves to you that we might receive the full comfort of God as you minister to us And as we become reservoirs, that we would also turn and become channels of your mercy, of your love, that we might be compassionate Christians, loving one another. In Jesus' name, amen.